Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil, and this is Thursday, June 14th, 2018. Tonight, Dan Quaja joins us from the great state of Illinois to discuss a case he is handling entitled U.S. Bank versus Lopez, another case where the courts are throwing curveballs and appear to be finding ways or looking for ways to rule for banks, perhaps in their minds to save the banking system, something I don't subscribe to. Tonight's focus is on the standing issue, but also procedure and appeals, which is what makes this case so interesting. And some of those issues seem to be clearing up until this uh, Lopez case came along in Illinois. As usual, the fate of this case lies more in procedural rules than in substantive laws, but both are involved, particularly when it comes to the issue of whether a party has legal standing to initiate foreclosure proceedings. I think the consensus has been that if you don't have standing when you start foreclosure, you can't correct it later. This is based on the simple premise that if there is no such standing, then there is no case and the court has no power or authority to enter any order except a ministerial order dismissing the claims of the foreclosing party, usually without prejudice, which means that they could bring a new suit, but they can't piggyback on the now non-existent present suit. That's what jurisdiction means. Without jurisdiction, there is no case to be heard. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 or 202-838-6345, the last four digits spelling out the name Neil, N-E-I-L, which is myself, of course. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work 
which we do without payment or any other support, has value to you, then chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So, welcome, Dan Quaja. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Thank you very much. So, and I believe I did not mangle your name, and I'm very proud of myself for not doing that. <laughs> you did an excellent job. So, Dan, uh, how long have you been handling uh, foreclosure cases in the state of Illinois? Surprisingly, not as long as some of my counterparts. I've been doing this since 2011, but at this point now, I've, I've litigated hundreds of foreclosure cases, and I've seen just about every scenario possible. And uh, the case before you today, U.S. Bank versus Lopez, um, when this case was filed in 2014, I, I recognize that it was very unique and it was very special. Um, I practice in all the surrounding counties of Chicago, not just Chicago itself, but DuPage, Lake, McHenry, Kendall. Um, I'm around all these counties, so I'm going before all these judges and um, around Chicago here, Chicago is the first district appellate court. U.S. Bank First Lopez was in the second district appellate court of Illinois, which is basically all the suburbs that surround it. Um, and well, I don't know if you want me to get into the case just yet, but uh, well, I, I, since 2011, I've done hundreds of foreclosures though since then. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm an admirer of your legal writing and thinking. And uh, that's why I wanted to have you uh, on the show so that uh, I could uh, share you with our audience. Um, let's uh, start with an overview of the Lopez case so listeners understand what this case is about, why it's important, uh, and what happened in the trial court. Okay. Well, uh, just to let the to give some background, on May first, May first, twenty thirteen, the Illinois Supreme Court promulgated Supreme Court Rule one thirteen, which requires the note to be attached in its current form with all endorsements and allonges. What's been happening for years here in Illinois is that the plaintiff files a complaint, the note wasn't endorsed to the plaintiff, they amend their complaint and then attach the requisite loan documents later. Obviously, a lot of litigation was created as to the authenticity of those documents. So the Supreme Court's like, all right, we better deal with this. So they implemented this rule requiring the bank to file a correct and complete foreclosure complaint at filing. Basically, line up all your ducks in a row. And when this case was filed on uh, March 11, 2014, the note was made payable to Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. So on the note itself, the payee was a government organization. And right then and there, I'm like, okay, what situation are we dealing with here? Um, do they forget to attach the correct note with a note endorsed to them? Um, or is this the only note that exists? Because if they didn't attach the correct note, they'd be in violation of the rule. So that rule was a procedural rule, and one I raised early on in the case, filing a motion to dismiss, because I was making a calculation that they're going to come in and say they didn't attach the right note. Uh, but that's not what happened here. They they came in and said that is the only note that we had at that time and that we are a non-holder with the rights of a holder. And before I even get into that, which may confuse people, um, essentially it was the first time I had a case where they judicially admitted that the only note that they had was endorsed to someone else. 
Um, so there was a lot of litigation in the trial court regarding this. Um, we raised motion to dismiss Supreme Court Rule 113. We eventually raised standing as an affirmative defense in the answer, supported by judicial admin, uh, admissions from the plaintiff, admitting they didn't have a note endorsed to them. Therefore, they were not the payee, and therefore, they didn't have the right to file the foreclosure. Um, they also, you know, even attached an affidavit from the vice president of Cadillus, who is also an attorney there, uh, admitting that they sent this uh they sent the uh, note off to the servicer after the foreclosure to obtain an endorsement. And this, the, the, the motion to strike on behalf of the plaintiff was eventually granted in this case. We had raised standing. We raised noncompliance with 203-604 of the HUD regulation. Uh, we raised um, Supreme Court Rule 113. And we also raised that eventually when they filed the motion to strike, uh, they use what's called the 619, the 735-52619. It's a procedural tool that's only available for a defendant to use, not a plaintiff. But they use it to strike my defense. And, and as we'll get to later, the, the appellate court kind of ignored that one. Um, it's important to note that uh, the note was endorsed to HUD, as I mentioned, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, under 203-351 of the Code of Federal Regulations. Uh, in order to obtain a claim for insurance benefits, you have to uh, sign the notes to HUD, and people should really be looking out for these for these federally insured notes. You have a note, and if it says FHA on the bottom, well, it's federally insured. That means if the mortgager falls into default, they got to assign this note to HUD in order to get their payout for insurance benefits. So what I surmise in this case is the note was endorsed to Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, a government agency, because they were trying to get their payout. When the trial court case concluded and they took the client's house, they hit him with a $144,000 personal deficiency. Now, think about that. I mean, that's a huge personal deficiency. You just took the house. You assigned the notes to HUD before the foreclosure was filed, which means you're trying to get a payout. I don't know how much money they obtained in the payout for insurance benefits, but it's why the note was assigned to HUD. And it shows you kind of the ridiculousness of, you know, what's going on here where they're, they're getting personal deficiencies against defendants under, under notes insured by the government where the government is paying them insurance benefits. Um, but I recognize that this, this case was very uh, unique. And I, because of the note was specifically endorsed to another party, you know, a lot of these foreclosure cases where, where people are raising standing, there's often a blank endorsement on the note. You know, the presumption of that is almost as good as Fort Knox unless you have some admissible evidence to prove it's not authentic. But when you have a note endorsed to a particular party, there is no better evidence. And when I filed the notice of appeal of this case, the second district appellate court selected it for oral argument. And oral arguments are extremely rare in the second district. I think this is you know, one of a handful in the last four or five years. And two of the three justices who were on my panel were also on the Gilbert's panel, which is the only other case in Illinois history where they reversed and dismissed for the bank's lack of standing. So, um, you know, I had, I had a pretty good panel, and they came to a decision that the note on its face showed that it was endorsed to a different party, reversing and dismissing the uh, foreclosure proceedings. And 21 days after that, case had been dismissed, um, had been withdrawn. Um, the opinion was withdrawn. I don't know the reasons why. Um, it was very unusual. And right around that time, the plaintiff had filed a petition for rehearing, you know, asking them to reconsider this decision. So again, uh, we went through a, another round of um, 
pleadings in the appellate court where I filed the response to the petition for rehearing. Then the appellate court came and issued a new decision on May 4, 2018. They reversed in part and they affirmed in part. They now decided to reverse and remand for the HUD issue, determining the plaintiff did not comply with the face-to-face regulation under 203-604, much like my reversal in U.S. Bank versus Hernandez. But they went from a unanimous panel finding the bank didn't have standing to a unanimous panel finding now the bank did have standing. Um, so the appellate court completely switched from one direction to another. And what they determined here was that the plaintiff was a non-holder with rights of a holder. And, you know, this is something everyone's probably going to have to deal with throughout the country. And I think, you know, Florida is really the map when you start to look at these cases. Do we have to deal with standing at inception? Is standing still the issue, whether they have standing or not, or legal right to enforce? Or are we looking beyond standing now? And are we dealing with um, uniform commercial code and these non-holder rights of a holder issues where they say, look, we have got the note. We have a right to enforce the note. It might be even endorsed to someone else. And then they have to come and, you know, show some type of proof that they bought the, the loan before the foreclosure or they, um, you know, otherwise acquired it through a pulling and servicing agreement. Something to show that, you know, they actually purchased this thing beforehand. So they're saying, they hold the notes and we have the rights to it. Um, but right now we don't have an endorsement or assignment, but we have other evidence. So the, the, the appellate court in this case, now went from one direction, finding the bank had no standing, there was a note endorsed to HUD, to finding that they were a non-holder with the rights of a holder at the original filing. And they did this because there was a mortgage assignment included in the complaint that predated the complaint. But the mortgage assignment made no reference to the note. And in the first opinion written by the appellate court, they clearly state and recognize that the mortgage assignment didn't reference the debt. And the law is very clear that an assignment of the uh, mortgage without a proper assignment of the note is a nullity in the law. And they, you know, wrote a big section about this in the first opinion that it meant nothing. In the second opinion, they reversed their decision and they now determined that the mortgage assignment gave them the right to enforce the note. It's, it's, it's a very strange um, reversal of the situation where, you know, the court was so clear on one end and they've totally switched their analysis now. So, um, you know, we, we've filed ask, our PLA, of course. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So let me ask you a couple of questions about all that. Sure. The trial court basically ruled against you and entered yes. the foreclosure, right? So yeah, that's correct. All right. Now, you mentioned that uh, they brought up the non-holder with rights of a holder, um, mm-hmm. and that's based on proof of authority. Let me, let me clarify uh, real quick for let me, let me clarify real quickly something for you. When they filed their original complaint, they attached a note endorsed to HUD, and they said that they were the legal holder of the indebtedness, also known as the holder of the note. When we went through a series of hearings on the standing issue, they moved to amend their complaint on oral motion at the motion to strike, and then they amended their complaint. They attached an allonge that was now endorsed from HUD to U.S. Bank, the plaintiff, and they changed their legal capacity. And they stated that when they filed their original complaint, they were non-holder with rights of a holder in possession of the note. Now they're the holder of the note. So what they did was is they, they changed their capacity in order to basically 
retroactively chair their standing, I guess, and, and say, look, we were a non-holder at that time. We made a mistake by saying we held the note and we were a legal holder of the indebtedness. We're actually a non-holder with the rights of a holder. So they amended their complaint and they changed their capacity to cure the original filing issue and what, what their, original, their initial capacity was that they alleged. And the appellate court went and bought that. So um, this case is really interesting for a number of reasons. The Supreme Court really needs to take a hard look at it because you've got this conflict now between capacity and standing. If you file a complaint and the note is endorsed to someone else, what is your legal interest in the case? What is the interest? But now if you say you're a non-holder of the rights of a holder, you can conceptually get past the standing issue and move on to foreclose as long as you're holding the note and you have some type of evidence that you have the right to enforce it. That evidence does not exist in this case, and I, I think the appellate court rightly uh, recognized that at first. Um, you know, a non-holder of the rights of a holder, if an appellate court was to find that, you know, plaintiff was a non-holder of the rights of a holder and became a holder, the type of evidence that needed to be produced you know, it was maybe proof the loan was sold to them before the foreclosure, a pooling and servicing agreement that identified the specific loan. Um, but all there was was in this case was a mortgage assignment, and it didn't identify the debt, and the appellate court knew that. And they did a, a very specific analysis of that in the first opinion. So um, the, the analysis is pretty striking how much it changed from the first to the second. And um, yeah. going, going from – yep, sorry – the, yeah, I, I think it, it's very striking, and what's, what's curious to me is that you say that there was absolutely no evidence um, put in the record about either a purchase of the debt or um, their, uh, uh, anything backing up their uh, naked assertion that they had the authority. There, there was zero evidence in the record that they acquired the rights to enforce the note before the foreclosure was filed. They did not obtain an endorsement to the plaintiff until after when they filed the amended complaint and attached the launch, which they admit was endorsed after. I mean, that's an undisputed fact. And a lot of times when um, defendants are arguing these standing cases in Illinois, they all say that, oh, the laundry is executed after. But they've never been able to prove it. And in, in this case, we did prove it. We had judicial admissions. And that's why we won until we lost. And, and so this will be the first case that's ever been out there where an appellate court openly recognizes the note was assigned or endorsed to the plaintiff after the complaint was filed. So, you know, that's, that's it's, it's, it's no small detail, and it's the first case ever like that where this has happened now. You know, there, there's never been a case where an appellate court openly recognized a note was endorsed to the plaintiff, making them the payee after the complaint was filed. So, um, you know, I, I really hope the Supreme Court takes a serious look at this case because there are things, so many things that are convoluted now between this non-holder, the rights of a holder, um, theory, you know, opposed to just straight standing and how it's, it's, it's kind of convoluting them all now. What type of interest do you need to show when the original complaint is filed? And I didn't think that. They didn't show any. And they didn't show they obtained the endorsement until later. But the, the appellate court now bought into this theory that they were not holding the rights of the holder at the original filing of the complaint, and they became the holder at the filing of the amended complaint. So... Well, um, that's where we're at with yep. you know, 
let me ask you this. How, I'm not sure how to phrase the question, how did they not violate Rule 113 from the Supreme Court? So that is an excellent question, which they didn't adopt. So it's the, this is where, when I filed the motion to dismiss, um, I stated that they violated Supreme Court Rule 113 because they didn't attach a notice to inform with all endorsements and oranges. They said, wait a minute, yes, we did. This is the only note that existed at that time. We attached the note as it currently existed. There is no other note. But by doing so, they judicially admitted that there is no other note endorsed to them, and that's why I initially won on the standing issue. So in order for me to win on the 113 issue of the Supreme Court, they're going to have to take a very strict interpretation of this rule and say, look, you have to file your complaint with all endorsements and allonges, or, or if you don't have the allonge yet, don't file. The issue with this case is, is that the allonge was created after the filing of the foreclosure. And years passed, and all these cases were litigated where they would file a complaint with an endorsed note, they would move to amend the complaint and say, we attached the wrong page or we didn't attach the launch, we forgot. They're not taking that position in this case. They're saying we attached the note that we had. The launch was created later and it didn't exist. And in the uh, second opinion, Justice Burke says very clearly that they attached the documents that they had. The launch didn't exist at that time. So that's how they got around Rule 113 that they complied because they said they attached the only note that existed. The launch was created later, so it was, uh, you know, an existential reality to be able to attach something that doesn't exist at that time. Now, if I had had a different case where there wasn't a launch that exists and they didn't attach it by some type of mistake, hopefully that would be game over and I would win. But again, you know, the spirit of the rule in this case you know, it doesn't seem to have been complied with because they were able to usurp the rule and not attach the allonge that they should have had at the original filing and attach it later by simply changing their capacity. And that's what they did here. They, they said, okay, we're not the legal holder of the indebtedness of filing. We were a non-holder with rights of a holder. We have the note. We have the right to enforce it. Here's the mortgage assignment, which, which made no reference to the debt. Uh, and again, you know, the, the analysis here is just sweeping because you'll never find any better case um, of lack of standing when you have a note made payable to another party. That's the whole purpose of the commercial code and being able to, you know, cash something that you're holding. If you have a note and it's made payable to you, it's called a special endorsement, that's the best evidence you're going to find. So there was no theory here that the blank endorsement was forged or bad or the trust didn't exist. This was instead of, you know, macro, this was a micro analysis. Look, I got a note and it's endorsed to someone else. And they got it. And if you read the first opinion, the appellate court got it. And if you listen to the oral arguments, which is also on my website, they ask very, very pointed questions. Um, you know, the, the appellate court goes, so if I'm holding a note and it's not mine and it's a specific assignment to Justice McLaren, I can come in and foreclose? Is that what you're telling me? I mean, the questions were so pinpointed, which you, you see in the PLA that I put in there. I mean, they just really had no doubt. So... You know, something happened where um, their minds really changed about this. And, you know, the one problem that I have is they didn't put forth any cases or authority in the entire country to demonstrate the facts of this situation. They, they cited a lot of cases where the plaintiff had an unendorsed note. So they're in possession of a note, but it's not endorsed to anyone. And then they had a mortgage assignment or a pulling and servicing agreement, and the court said, okay, you're a non-holder with the rights of a holder. You've shown some additional evidence, 
and you're holding the note. But in all those cases, the note was unendorsed. And the cases that they cited, they actually got from my brief to argue in the alternative because they couldn't find anything to support their own case um, with the facts of this. So, you know, it really renders a specific endorsement on a note meaningless, the, the, the current um, appellate case here, it renders it meaningless. I mean, is it possible to be a non-holder's rights to the holder's note endorsed to someone else? From what I understand it is, and I, I've read some Florida cases to that effect. But again, you still have to prove how you had the right to enforce this note before the foreclosure was filed. And yeah. there was no evidence it's, in the record that, that showed that. It's theoretically possible, but you'd have to show the actual chain of authority leading back to the owner of the debt who purchased it or still has it or whatever it is. So Exactly right. And I cited the the Maryland Supreme Court case, which is pretty instructive, um, that says you have to show each and every transaction how you prove the rights to enforce the note if you're a non-holder, the rights of a holder. So not just, you know, one endorsement to the next. If you've got multiple endorsements, you need to show every transaction how you acquired the rights to enforce the note as a non-holder. And the Maryland Supreme Court, which is, I think, the seminal case in the country, uh, which one of my attorney friends, Mike Ribble, is kind enough to share with me for this PLA, um, is, is the leading authority. Um, people should also take a look at the Frost case in Florida, um, and I believe the Murray versus Anderson case. I had a few cases there for the PLA that your your audience can see. But those three cases there break down the analysis of what you need to be a non-holder with rights of a holder. And the appellate court in this case certainly did not meet the standards of those of, of those appellate cases. In the Maryland one, it's a Supreme Court. So there's there's no part of this case that's on remand down, back down to the trial judge. Well, that's and that is what 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 I was most concerned. Okay, they reversed and remanded, finding that there is a genuine issue of material fact whether the plaintiff has complied with the face-to-face HUD regulations. But rather than remanding on the standing issue, you know, to make them prove further evidence that they acquired this transaction, they straight up just struck the affirmative defense with prejudice. And one issue that I brought up repeatedly was that you cannot use a, in Illinois, a 735 ILCS 52619 to strike an affirmative defense. It's a procedural tool for the defendant. And the authority um, that interpreted that case came from the second district, which is a federated versus mural, which says it's a procedural tool only for a defendant. And I raised that issue in the trial court, in my brief, at oral arguments, uh, before the appellate court, you're going to get in the response petition for rehearing. I must have said four times that they couldn't have even considered the motion to strike my standing defense because the procedural tool they utilize is not available to them. Raised repeatedly from the trial court on, and that was just completely glossed over, which was really bothersome to me because that, that alone uh, was reversible error, and it was brought up so many times. Um, I don't know what more I could have done. So... Um, no, I, there, there's no way the affirmative. Def- I'm sorry. I, I, I certainly don't know anything myself, uh, having read the materials, that you could have done differently. I, I uh, it's it's apparent to me that the uh, what's going on here uh, is that 
political forces may have um, intervened um, uh, even though that's not supposed to happen because for a court to reverse itself like that is uh, especially the way they did it is really uncommon so now <laughs> you're taking it up to the Supreme Court of Illinois and what are you asking the court, the Supreme Court to do now? Well, when you appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, it's a petition for leave to appeal, basically saying that, you know, you have some very important issues here that you need to take a look at. And I've broke them down into three, basically. The first Supreme Court Rule 130. You know, it was designed to remedy these pleading defects, so you don't attach an allonge later, an endorsed note later. You know, the factual situation may not be as a rule designed, but it still was meant to deal with these issues. And now we have, again, a plaintiff attaching an endorsed allonge later, which basically proved their standing. Um, and that's the first issue. The second issue is this. I've basically framed it as whether standing can be cured retroactively by amendment. You know, whether that's the, the correct position or not, they filed a complaint stating they were the legal holder of the indebtedness, U.S. Bank, that is, and the note was endorsed to HUD as the payee. So how did you have a legal interest in this case? They then filed the amended complaint, and they changed their capacity. They basically amended their complaint and retroactively cured standing. That's kind of how I look at it. The third issue is, is that the Supreme Court should grant this uh, leave for this case because they have to correct the application of the Uniform Commercial Code. I've cited the authority and the analysis that a, that a court must undertake to determine if a plaintiff is a non-holder of the rights of a holder. And that evidence is an absent here. And if this case is allowed to stand, the banks will be citing Lopez left and right saying, look, we're a non-holder rights of a holder. Yeah, the note's endorsed to someone else, but we have a mortgage assignment. It doesn't reference the debt. It doesn't reference the note, but we got a mortgage assignment. For, give us a judgment. Let us foreclose. So those are the three issues I have framed. Now, in Illinois, the uh, petition for leaves to appeals, which you can see on the Supreme Court website, they take about 3 to 6%. And if you look at the website, it means there's hundreds and hundreds of denied PLAs. It's a, a graveyard of uh, broken hopes and lost dreams. It's extremely difficult. And I'm not aware of the Supreme Court ever taking a standing-related case in a mortgage foreclosure action. And they've had, no doubt, thousands and thousands of PLAs. I certainly have some friends who have tried since the crash. And nobody has been able to break through that wall. So... I think this case is everything that they're looking for. It's the perfect storm. But, again, is it, I mean, what's going to get their attention? So I did file my, my PLA uh, last week, and the Supreme Court's in recess. So they'll be back in September, and uh, they should get to this case sometime after. Now, uh, you know, again, when you have hundreds and hundreds of PLAs, you know, what is their, their process and the methodology to sort through these cases and then determine which ones are relevant? You know, um, obviously I have the first opinion in my appendix in this case. It's right there for them to see how the court ruled one way before ruling with another. You know, a lot of shiny gold nuggets are in this case for them to look at, but what's going to break through that barrier for the Supreme Court to finally say it's time to take one of these cases? Because obviously everyone's afraid of the bank's ability uh, to collect. They're, they're an enormous, powerful force, and we see that on the federal level, and we see that in many states, but I think Illinois is by far the most draconian, 
I mean, if I look at when I look at Florida, I see standing reversals all the time. They have a lot more progressive laws, and if you have the facts, you can win. But Illinois has just not shown that yet. This case was the second case in Illinois history reversing and dismissing for Banks' lack of standing, joining Deutsche Bank versus Gilbert. But they obviously have reversed that decision, leaving Gilbert by its lonesome again. So it just shows you, and you consider the the numbers since the crash. You know, there. I had to, when I was doing this PLA, I got some you know facts um, from the, uh, the, the 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 Chancery Division of the Clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County, and I was asking them how many foreclosures they have cutting there alone, and it was over sixteen thousand, I believe. I think that's the number I put in there. It used to be <laughs> it used to be I think sixty, but I mean just in Cook County alone, there's there's thousands of foreclosures still pending, and the state as a whole, there's still a big problem here. So, you know, they they need to look at these issues and finally take one of these cases. And, and I don't know, we could be in a crash again tomorrow and, you know, have hundreds of thousands of foreclosures. The, the problem with this case is, is that um, it's more than just a standing case. It puts so much out there now in terms of the evidence you need as a non-holder or lack thereof that it's just going to be a field day for the banks once they start interpreting this thing because there's just so many things missing in this case um, that the appellate court should have addressed. And now, you know, I, I can't even imagine what the bank's attorneys are seeing as they read this thing. Oh, so now we can foreclose the note endorsed to someone else? I mean, there's just a lot of problems, and, and I hope they take a serious look at it. But, again, I don't know what it's going to take to break that barrier. I, I don't know either. Uh, uh, how would you, I think maybe you just did, uh, how would you describe the general climate uh, in foreclosure cases in Illinois? Well, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a reason I practice in so many different counties. It's to be able to get a little bit of a difference with different judges because I feel like it's much harder to litigate in, in certain counties than others. And the thing is, with a lot of these judges, they actually put them there, like some of the newer ones, they'll put them in the foreclosure first. Like, oh, why don't you do foreclosure first before we, we put you to something harder? So often I feel like myself and some of the other lawyers going in there to practice know 10 times more than some of the, the judges do that are coming in there for the first time because we've litigated so many of these cases. But the presumption is still very much there, look, you're not paying your mortgage. I don't want to hear this standing defense. And that's, I mean, that's always there. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the judges, you know, I think lean towards the bank for, for whatever reason they, they got that way. But there, there's a presumption and, and there's a stigma, even though there's legitimate defenses. And now, you know, I've pulled a couple of reversals of late, and there's not many in this state. So you start to crack that egg. And you start to break through a little bit. I'm like, okay, we have some legitimate defenses here. And you guys need to start recognizing this. But if you look at foreclosures in a whole in Illinois, and I, I look at the Illinois Appellate Court website every day to see if reversals come down, I mean, we get one or two a year. Um, and, I mean, notable. And there's what's called a published opinion and then a Rule 23. If the top of the case says Rule 23, that means it can't be cited as precedent. So if you see one of those come down, then it's not worth anything, really. Um, my reversal on Hernandez in 2017, I think, was the only major one that year. And then, obviously, I did reverse again in Lopez for the HUD issue. But, you know, we're, we're breaking through here, and we're getting some nice reversals. But I still think that the final result in 
the Lopez case was wrong, and the analysis concerns me. And you know what what this case could potentially do to the the foreclosure defense bar, what kind of damage it could cause. So, um, Mike, but it's hard. Foreclosures foreclosure is a very yeah. difficult practice area. I'm 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 well aware, and unfortunately, uh, because of the challenge, uh, too many lawyers who started off doing foreclosure defense left the field. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and and that's that's narrowed the opportunities for homeowners to have access to competent legal counsel. My concern. Oh, absolutely. Is, yeah. Well, I, actually, I got two questions for you. My my concern here, and I actually brought this up in a case in Orlando, where I got so frustrated with Aquin and U.S. Bank and that whole crazy stuff that I literally wrote in my motion for sanctions, when do your orders mean anything? (laughs) I'm sure that didn't go over well. (laughs) It didn't, but I got the ruling I wanted. And he basically (laughs) said, okay, we're going to try this one more time, and anyone who's in violation of the order is going to be penalized a thousand dollars a day starting now. So my question really is, uh, what do you see as the future of the courts abiding by their own rules? And I'm thinking of 113, and I'm thinking of rules of procedure, etc. Do you see them ever coming around uh, the way they did? Many years ago, I practiced 41 years plus, uh, uh, where even if the homeowner didn't show up, the judge would carefully look over all the paperwork, and if the dots didn't connect, he'd send the lawyer home to to try again on the foreclosure. And I represented banks and condo associations and so so forth. That happened to me a couple of times where I didn't have, you know, one of the, an assignment or I didn't have uh, the default letter or whatever it was. And now the question is, um, considering what the rules were and that foreclosure is like the civil equivalent of capital punishment, I mean, it can't get any worse <laughs> I mean, at what well, point are you going to have judges that uh, stop getting curious? Um, there's certainly right. plenty of lawyers like you out there. There's not enough, but there, there's plenty of lawyers who do understand this stuff and are, you know, ed- educating the judges, but it's like they have their ears plugged. Um and and then there's the problem that you brought up that I think is is overlooked completely, and that is very frequently a judge hearing a foreclosure case is new to the bench, 
and knows virtually nothing about property law, <laughs> contract law, or the rules of procedure, or the rules of evidence, and and he's the one making a decision. Um, that frustration, you know, I've t- I took out a couple of times over my years where, by going to the administrative judge. Uh, when I uh, like one time I complained about uh, a judge that was completely unprepared every time we went in on a hearing, and it was a big case. And uh, my reward, <laughs> my reward was the judge was totally prepared next time, and he and he denied every motion I had. But um, <laughs> uh, I've I've had to win quite a many of my cases on motions to reconsider, where you're just pounding and pounding and pounding in their head and highlighting from the transcript what they said before and comparing it to the case on point. Um, and you can't be just a writer in this field. You better have some uh, verbal skills and be able to deliver to explain to them, especially the new judges coming in. Here in Illinois, um, there's some that have been around for a while, but some that are kind of like musical chairs. So you've got to really be able to adjust judge to judge. Um, and I'm in all these counties. I'm also part of the Association of Proposed Defense Attorneys. We're a group of about 80 attorneys and um, almost all the relevant reversals in this state have come from my group. So we talk about this stuff all the time. We have our listserv. We post stuff on the listserv, and we compare notes. Uh, and to answer your question about things changing, back in 2011 when, you know, you do a standing room only in the foreclosure process, you couldn't move, um, there was a lot of uh, mercy for the homeowners at first. Then the judges lost their patience, and they saw the same defenses over and over. And that's the problem. There's not a lot of creativity in this practice area, at least. Um, by some attorneys, some are very good and can come up with new stuff, but when you say, see the same stuff over and over, it's very monotonous and wears people down. But I was thinking, okay, you know what? As the, the, the foreclosure volume goes down, they're going to start getting a little more serious about these arguments, whether it be standing or whatever else, um, and that's going to start to change things. But uh, I haven't really been right about that, but, you know, and I don't want to portray this um, incorrectly. There are, there are some pretty good foreclosure judges in Illinois. The problem is they just don't stay around very long. And, you know, just to give you a, a, an idea of the lay of the land, the third district of Fowler Court, there's five in Illinois, I'm not aware of one single notable foreclosure reversal in that court ever. <laughs> so how difficult it is. The first district, which is Chicago, Cook County, we get, you know, one or two a year out of there. There's six divisions, though. There's six divisions with three member panels on each division. So, again, whatever panel you get, um, and you need some luck to get the best one, <laughs> that, that's going to determine your case. The second district where Lopez was in has, has shown to be the best and the most thoughtful and, you know, come up with some of the more notable decisions. Um, but you know, a lot of these cases get wiped away, too. Uh, there was one case that came out of the second district. First mortgage got in the second here. district. I'm sorry. We're we're running out of time here. I want to get two okay. things. Um, uh, first of all, to tell the audience that uh, Dan's uh, Dan Quaja's uh, website is iforeclosure.com, like iPhone. IL I L foreclosurelawyer.com. Oh, I L. Okay. I L. Foreclosure lawyer, one word. Okay, got it. 
Um, and the other thing is, and I wanted to ask you if that group you have, that association, do they take referrals as a group or? Um, or, or we have a real, we, we, we have talked about that. We had talked about that in the past. We don't really have anything set up in particular for that. Um, that's something we actually talked about last year, and we never really um, okay. Dan you know, we never came to fruition. Dan Quadra from Illinois, attorney at law. Uh, look him up. I like everything he has to say. And we'll be back. Thank you, Dan. We'll be back next week with more information for consumers. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.